Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy who brought us through to 11. On the line with me today is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I see that you've dressed for Melbourne with your grey <laughs> on grey. For those of you at home, Dr. Shane is wearing a grey scarf partnered with a grey jumper for this grey Melbourne day. (laughs) Well, there's just so much colour in the studio. I didn't want to, you know, confuse people, even though they can't see it. You know, they they can probably hear it in my voice. That it's, uh, yeah, hey, it's not too bad. But, uh, you know, I think um, I just grabbed what was on the shelf this morning and I tend to always grab these clothes. Because one of the things I have to do is when I leave the studio is I often have to wash things that I've worn in here because we're in such a confined space. The smell of cleaning products can be right quite problematic for a member of my family and so when i get home i have to sort of um deal with this situation so yes anyway you have a uh, you have a, you have a doffing protocol for entering your house yeah exactly pretty much um <laughs> you know i kind of get washed down hosed down before i i come inside <laughs> on a day like today is not so pleasant but uh. yes so it's uh, now we should say a, a big cheerio to Dr. Lauren, who unfortunately is a bit unwell today. And I should say she doesn't have COVID. There are other illnesses that people get, especially if you've got kids. <laughs> they tend to infect <laughs> you with everything. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, the only thing the only thing worse than holding a vomiting two year old is knowing that you're about to become a vomiting parent. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've been there. Uh, not the best, but anyway, look, folks, we've got a huge show for you coming up today. We're going to be talking um, about some of the new insects that have been named. Well, they're not new; they're always there, I suppose. But um, named by the CSIRO this year with some some cool names coming out there. We're also going to be talking to one of the specialists from the Royal Children's Hospital about mental health in kids and just some of the things we know and don't. No, especially with the impending return to school, which is all happening. And then we're going to talk to a volcanologist because uh, if you've been watching the Canary Islands, there's a volcano over there that's going nuts. And as much as the images are spectacular, volcanoes, of course, do pose a very significant threat. And us humans, for some reason, it could be because the soil is so good nearby, tend to like living near them. It's kind of weird, but it happens. But before we get onto that, we're going to start with some news now. Dr. Crystal, you've been, despite the clouds, you've been looking up. Uh, yeah, Dr. Shane, um, I've been fascinated by the celebrity space races that we've seen going on over the last few months. I mean, we've all heard about the billionaires who've all wanted to be the first to space, but mm. now it seems like they're trying to outcompete each other with what guests they can bring to space. And this week, I was, you know, as a Star Trek uh, tragic fan, I was so, so excited to see that William Shatner, who played uh, James Tiberius Kirk in uh, Star Trek, finally made it into space this week. At age 90. I know. He's also the oldest person to go into space. Can I just say, and I know he was a fine figure of a human when he was young, much more so than I am, but if I look anywhere near that good when I'm 90, (laughs) I mean, in fact, let me back that up. If I'm still here when I'm 90, (laughs) I'll be pretty impressed if you can put me on a rocket at, what, 8Gs or whatever that thing pulls and and you survive. That's That's a big deal. Yeah, so he was in the he went to suborbital, suborbital space in uh, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, and he described it as the most profound experience. And the way he described sort of going from the blue of the sky to the blackness mm. of space, he just that moment where where you know you've crossed a threshold. He he, he found that a very moving experience. But um, but but the other. Um, interesting uh, celebrity space race that's been going on is not only putting celebrities in space just to go there, but what about filming a movie in space, like an actual film? This has been happening on the International Space Station over the last two weeks. So a Russian film crew of two 
an actor, Yulia Perilsild, who she's a very famous Russian actor, she's a huge celebrity, and a director, Klim Shipenko, have been on the International Space Station in the Russian quarter filming scenes from an upcoming movie called The Challenge, and they are the first people to film a movie in space. They had 12 days, and the two of them had to do all of the the lighting, the makeup, like it's just the two of them Mm. setting up to, to film and, of course, um, the actor, uh, Yulia, she plays a cardiac surgeon who's been sent into orbit to save a cosmonaut. And they <laughs> just happen great. to have a couple of cosmonauts hanging around. So oh, yeah. the two Russian cosmonauts in kind of a very, um, you know, a very method acting approach are actually playing Russian cosmonauts in the film. And so over the last 12 days they've been filming these scenes um, and apparently... Uh, they pipped Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise had yeah, come out and yeah, said yeah. he wanted to be the first, yeah. um, you know, to film in space and Russia was like, yeah, no, nah, we're already doing it. <laughs> Mission a little bit too impossible, Tom. I know, right. So, um, so, so, so they're on their way back, but the um, but the trip didn't go um, entirely uh, without incident. Apparently this morning there was some quote-unquote unplanned thruster firings from the Russian spacecraft that had docked with the oh. ISS. Um, that actually fired up. So they fired up these thrusters as part of a pre-planned test, like just before that mm. the spacecraft was going to d- depart. But then they didn't stop. So these thrusters continued to fire longer than expected, and that actually caused a loss of altitude control for the ISS. So there's oh. about half an hour where they'd lost lost a bit of altitude, and they were trying to recorrect. But they did correct within 30 minutes, and they regained control. And so now the ISS is in a stable um, configuration back in its orbit, which is just as well. Because it's going to go over Melbourne tonight. Yeah, yeah. What about eight thirty or something or other? I think I'm trying to remember the time. Yeah. So, so if you want to look up at the um, International Space Station tonight, it's passing over Melbourne. Set your alarms for eight thirty-eight or just prior. And if the clouds allow, and hopefully the clouds are clearing this afternoon, um, you'll be able to look to the northwest and you'll be able to see this uh, moving bright light in the sky and it'll go straight in a pretty straight line overhead from uh northwest to southeast um just after 8 38 tonight so i'll be out there in my uggs um on the driveway uh having a look (laughs) the good thing about the uh the international space station because it's not a small object um so it can be pretty bright depending on the exact angle but it it does traverse the whole sky so i mean to be fair to melbourne it's rare that the whole sky is cloudy. There's usually a patch somewhere. So, That's you know, true. Yeah, if you keep an eye out, you, you've got a pretty good chance of seeing it, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. I always think it's quite remarkable to look up and see it. And and the other thing is that it's about it's about 400 kilometres away. Um, and so you actually think, mm, it's closer to Melbourne than Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it, it's, it's actually pretty close in some ways. It's not that far away. It's interesting. Um, and it, I should say to people, like, if they didn't hear William Shatner's unloading of emotions after he got back onto the ground, it really is worth a listen because I think he was more, he was more profound in the way he said things than pretty much anyone I've heard in this sort of, um, you know, with this sort of experience in the past. And the one thing he really couldn't get his head around, you know, was just how thin the atmosphere was and how, you know, how easy it was for us to damage that as a result. And I think he, he made this great commentary around uh, the sort of emotional turmoil he was feeling and that he never wanted that to go away. He actually said, I don't want to recover from this, which I thought was interesting. He wanted to stay in that state of, you know, amazement that he was in briefly after after landing i mean i think that's the definition of awe isn't it you're just in this moment of awe like it's just very profound people who've been up there and have looked down and and have had some really quite life life changing or life viewing experiences it's um it sounds quite remarkable yeah yeah no amazing now uh dr crystal before uh, you go i wanted to talk to you about an experience that i had yesterday and this this is interesting as a science communicator just getting your reflections but i I found a new coffee shop in my area and as i as i walked in uh, you know my my wife and i noticed immediately that you know we're already sort of in the door but no one in the place was wearing masks and it's really interesting as a science communicator as to how to respond to this because you don't want confrontation. Um, you realise that it's you know it's very problematic, but it's but it's sort of you kind of we're almost in that state some of us at the moment where we're we're sort of so tired of trying to push these messages that you kind of just get get out of there as quickly as you can and you know hope for the best. I mean, how how what have you seen? Are you seeing similar situations? 
Yeah, no, actually, it's funny you mention it because this week I had an experience where I had to go to the post office um, and I was wearing a mask and, the, and the, the, the staff in the post office wearing a mask, but one person at the counter being served wasn't. And I was next in line and mm. they sort of called me up to the counter and I was like, well, I'm going to come up to the counter, but I'm going to distance myself from the person who's not wearing a mask. And, and while I don't think it's my role to ask that person why because you know they might have a medical exemption there might be a very valid reason why they're not wearing a mask it doesn't mean that I want to stand within Mm. like not socially distanced from them or I I really want to consider my own personal safety and so I think that's my reflection moving forwards is that I'm just going to have to make the best choices for me and my family and you know influence those around me by having positive conversations by you know and sharing my values and and why I'm why I'm still wearing a mask. It's like, well, you're double vaxxed. Why are you still wearing a mask? It's like, well, I do it for myself, but also for those around me, you know, that kind of mm. what it means to you and and not in a confrontational way. Cause I don't think you're going to change people's yep. minds, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's really about ev- every person having a real conscious kind of thoughts about, well, what does it mean to me and, and, and how, how am I going to protect myself and, yep. and what are my own personal risk appetites, I guess. Yeah. I remember um, talking to Margie Danchin about this probably 10 years ago now before all this happened, we were talking about vaccinations. And one of the things that was really clear was that being judgmental of people did not help bring them on side. It actually made things worse. And I think there's two really big groups at the moment. Well, one's really small, but we have a group of people who are hesitant and to be fair, they've been absolutely blasted with a lot of misinformation over the last year. And, and I think they're the ones I don't want to leave behind. And very happy to do quite a bit of work to, to get them where they need to be. Then there's a different group, though, that are, that are willfully putting out misinformation, you know, information that's not based on science about vaccinations and masks and so forth. Now, that's a different group to me. I don't want to engage with that group, um, frankly, and I'll sort of offset what they're saying wherever I can. Um, but they're not a group that I'm going to hold out hope for. Um, I'm going to try and get the large majority that are, you know, hesitant. A very, a very large group of people who are hesitant. And we see this actually even around the AstraZeneca vaccine in in our some of our over sixty citizens, um, where they're still hesitant because of all the negativity around the vaccine that was put out, you know, early on. And I think there's there's a responsibility for us to to help help them across the line because they haven't been given clear educational information around vaccines in a way that was helpful early. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's where I'm heading. Yeah, and I think it's really, I think it's really important to continue to have a voice because you're right. There are those minority of willful misinformers. And if they have a loud voice and there's no counter voice, I feel mm. like you've got to, there has to be voices in the space. And, and we're very lucky to have amazing science communicators like um, Professor Margie Danchen and others who are really values led in the way that they communicate, yeah. not only telling people what, um, what they want to tell them, but really actually helping people with what they, the people want to hear. Like you've got to think about your audience, right? You know, you've got to give audiences what they want and they want to get the information in a certain way you know, from people they trust. And so I think there's, there's some incredible work that's gone on to, to really meet uh, communities where they are yeah. um, and provide information in a way that is understandable and also trusted. So yeah. it's been remarkable. And I think we're seeing that now in our vaccine rates. They're really going up, which is just wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and acknowledgement, I think, is really important. I mean, I know in my case, I'm a middle-aged white guy, and there's a certain number of people who will, will listen to me. But there's a lot of people for whom I'm probably the worst worst possible person to send that message out. And, you know, I think we need to acknowledge that. And, and, and groups are starting to do that, especially in Victoria, I think, where we're seeing, you know, information being put out to various communities now in a way that's more appropriate for, for them and their needs. And, you know, we can't assume that, you know, one... One one dude looking like me is is the person that should be putting out those messages because that's just not um, that's not appropriate at all and it's not it's not going to help. No, but I do know that there's a lot of Triple R listeners out there who have just been so incredibly fantastic throughout the pandemic. So thank you to everyone in the community who's stepped up and done the right thing the whole way. Yep, no, it's excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Crystal, I'm going to have to leave you there because we have a, our, a guest from CSRO hopefully on the line in a few Ooh. minutes. I can't wait to hear about the insect names. It's I know, be great. I know. It is a really cool one too that uh, you'll, you'll love. But, uh, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes uh, speaking to our first guest for today. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line with us now is Dr. Brian Lassard. He's an entomologist. Good morning, Brian. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. And I want to talk to you about some stuff you've been doing, actually, uh, until recently you were at the CSIRO. But um, over there, they I, I wasn't aware of this whole program, but there's a program every year of naming new species for Australia. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of these are insects. But talk us through what happens there. What, what does CSIRO do each year in this regard? Yeah, so we join a national effort where we're still documenting and naming new species to science in Australia. And in the last year, the CSIRO named 150 new species hmm. um, of insects, plants, fish, and um, some other critters as well. And a lot of them were insects because, as you can tell, insects are really small. They live in really hard-to-find areas like leaf litter and the canopy, and there's just so many species out there waiting for us to discover. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the, uh, let's start with a couple of the others for a second, like plants. Are we finding a whole lot of new plants, or is it just a few? Yeah, we are still finding new plants species um, to this day. And compared to insects, um, plants are very well documented because there's a lot of people interested in plants. Um, it's harder to get the general public on board to uh, be inspired to go out and uh, find new species of insects, although that's part of my job, encouraging people to start mm. thinking that flies and other insects are equally as charismatic as new species of um, lizards and birds and plants as well. Um, one of the new plants we found was a new species of pandanus, um, which grows up the coast around northern uh, Queensland. And um, its fruit are absolutely massive. They're mm. so beautiful. And um, I think they're about 50 centimetres long um, and bright yellow. And it's surprising that they weren't um, found earlier uh, but the problem is, one of the challenges is we have to make sure that these species are new um, by doing DNA work or comparing them to specimens we have in our natural history collections. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was, I was going to ask that, like, how often is this a sort of scenario where we're not entirely sure that this is a, a separate species? Like, I remember, and I'm not sure where, where we're at with this at the moment, but there was a period where the brontosaurus and the apatosaurus kind of collided and everyone thought that actually the brontosaurus was just a baby apatosaurus and it got wiped out of everyone's children's books potentially and then i think there's been some update on that but you know sometimes it's hard to determine whether something is actually a separate species or not right yeah, and naming a species is the first step to really understanding that species, whether it's the Brontosaurus or Apatosaurus, because it gives the scientists a um, specific name to be able to use mm. um, so we can see if we need to protect them and conserve them as well. Um, and some species are so very closely related um, that you won't be able to tell until you do a DNA test to map right. their genetic fingerprint and see that they're different. Yeah. Now, you've been looking at, at a few in particular, and one, you, there's a few that you've given some pretty fancy names to this time around, and I want to talk about why, why you've done that. But the, the soldier, there's a soldier fly that you've named this year that you, you gave a name that I think a lot of our listeners will recognize. This was the 50th species I'd ever named, so I wanted to do something quite special. Yep. Um, this is a fly that's found from southeast Queensland. It's about a centimetre long, and it has an iridescent metallic rainbow coloration. It's the most gorgeous fly you'll ever see, and it looks like a dazzling little uh, jewel buzzing around on the forest floor. And it has a distinctive feature where it has a, um, a little thorn tucked under its abdomen too. Okay. And that with its rainbow color, I decided to name it after the one and only RuPaul um, because it looks <laughs> like something RuPaul would wear. Yeah, it sounds, well, it sounds like you're describing RuPaul to some degree when you describe the, the colors of the fly. Um, and there's a, there's a whole uh, list of other ones you've named after, I think, uh, some of the harder to find Pokemon as well. Yeah, that was our PhD student, um, uh, Yun Xiao, who was a massive Pokemon fan, and he was out collecting, looking for these beetles that he was interested in as part of his PhD, and he found them incredibly rare to find, so he decided to name them after the rare legendary Pokemon that are just as hard to find, um, Moltres, Articuno, and Zapdos too. And what's really cool is Yun was a massive fan of Pokemon growing up. He used to watch it as a kid, and he thinks that watching Pokemon actually inspired him to become an entomologist. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Now, I think, um, I think most people have this uh, similar reflection 
to me about uh, hearing about new, you know, sometimes we hear about astronomical objects or stars or various things, and they're given these boring, you know, alphanumeric designations that no one will ever remember. I mean, what, what is the value in giving some of these insects these colorful names? It, it's so important to name them. And some of the flies that I've named are from areas that were devastated by the recent summer bushfires. Mm. Um, they lost their habitat and they're found nowhere else in the world. And not many people are interested in flies. So part of my um, my mission here was to give them really fabulous names to help draw the attention of citizen scientists and maybe policy officers too, so that we could start going out and seeing if these um, impacted flies are recovering from the bushfires or if they need our help. And naming species after celebrities is a really good way of getting people excited about these creatures, but also talking about the science of um, naming species, taxonomy. Um, scientists have only estimated, uh, we've estimated that we've only described about a quarter of all species in the world. And every day we're discovering new ones to science. So it's really important that we name them so then we can be able to identify them and recognize them in conservation policy management too. Yeah. Do, do you find that um, if you use sort of iconic Australian names that uh, policymakers will pay more attention? Like are they more likely to save the Hugh Jackman fly than fly number 107? I 100% think they would as well. <laughs> um, and also going out looking for a Hugh Jackman fly, um, citizen scientists would be way more interested in that. Um, and last year, uh, one of our students at the insect collection um, named a species of robber fly after um, Deadpool uh, mm. and even uh, Chris Hemsworth as well. So I don't know if they're from bushfire affected areas, but yeah, if you're interested in finding these fabulous flies, you can pull out your smartphone next time you're on a hike and use a citizen science app like iNaturalist and take a photo and see if you can have some fun trying to identify it as well. Yeah, that, that sounds cool. Now, Brian, what about the value of these insects in uh, the ecosystem? Because most, of, I think most people, when they think of flies, they think of, you know, get away from me. I, I don't want you around. But they do play a very substantial role, don't they? Exactly. So most people think flies are annoying and only a handful of them are so, uh, like bush flies um, that get on your back when you're trying to go for a hike. But all flies are essential workers in the ecosystem. They're actually really important pollinators, um, pollinating some of our iconic native plants like eucalyptus and tea trees. And researchers in Australia are actually finding out that our native blowflies are actually really good pollinators of our crops like mangoes and avocados that we're growing here. Um, they're also really important nutrient recyclers too, like these new soldier flies, um, eating a lot of the leaf litter and bark and turning that into compost that other plants um, can eat as well. Mm. So if we wiped out all the flies in the world, the ecosystem would collapse. Yeah. And also we wouldn't have chocolate because chocolate is pollinated by the tiny little midge fly. Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. Uh, and in terms of the sort of biosecurity elements, I, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, appropriately classifying the flies that we already have here is very important in, or, you know, any insects in, in that sense, in making sure that we, we know what we've got and we know what shouldn't be here. Definitely. It's really important to separate the pests from the, the rest. Um, and we've got really great biosecurity surveillance officers detecting what's coming into the country um, through uh, shipping goods around the world. And they document what they find and then they compare it to what species actually occur in Australia. And if it occurs in Australia and it's native, there's nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. But if it's a high-risk exotic, it's important that we're able to tell that straight away so we can um, appropriately manage um, that risk as well. And Australia has a quarter of all species named, including mosquitoes as well. And part of my research is actually naming 170 new species of mosquitoes that we know about that live in Australia. Wow. And we were able to detect, detect a foreign species um, in the Northern Territory by looking at its DNA and comparing it to the native um, Australian mosquitoes too. And we've actually realized that it it's a potential uh, vector of Japanese encephalitis virus. So now that we know that that um, 
is being detected in Northern Territory, we can take the next steps to manage that and make sure it doesn't spread throughout Australia. Yeah, oh, look, it's, it's fascinating stuff, Brian. I think I hadn't really had such a, a clear understanding of just how much work was being done there every year. And as you say, 150 new species in the last year is, is not an in, insignificant number, even though I, I realise that the number of insect species around the world is quite enormous. But uh, making sure that we, we have these classified and we know where they're located, when they're endangered and so forth is is ever so important. So, look, thanks so much for chatting to us on uh, Einstein and Gogo today. And, and look, we really hope that you you do well in convincing more and more people to, you know, not just look at birds and plants and, and you know, the, the, the bigger items, but also these important insects that really are critical to our ecosystem. Thanks so much for the chat today. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. Folks, that was Dr. Brian Lassard, an entomologist and formerly at the CSIRO. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we're going to be uh, speaking about uh, children's mental health and the return to school and all the things that I think a lot of us are worried about at the moment. Triple R. Uh, well, hopefully everyone has subscribed over the last few months and we appreciate you doing so, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo, and uh, we have on the line with us now Professor Sharon Goldfield. She's a paediatrician, the director of the Centre for Community Child Health at the Royal Children's Hospital, and she holds a number of other roles, including being a professor in the Department of Paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Sharon. Good to talk to you uh, so soon again after our last chat. Uh, good morning, Shane, and it's lovely to be back. Now, it's, uh, I mean, you must be run off your feet at the moment. Everything's happening in your world of um, mental health and kids. And I mean, what, what's your day-to-day like at the moment? <laughs> well, it's probably not dissimilar to a lot of people's day-to-day. So just kind of balancing family, working from home, and just an extraordinary workload. Uh, you know, before the pandemic, I just think we all thought we were really busy and working really hard. And then the pandemic hit. Now I feel like, what was I doing before? How did I even exist? I seem to be working so hard and just yet never actually leaving my chair. Yeah, it's funny. So it is crazy. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I recall when we first went into lockdown was, you know, I was going to convert that time driving and parking and so forth into going for a walk. And for about a month or so, that's exactly what I did. You know, I'd go for these 5K walks every day. And then a couple of months later, it was sort of like, oh, but I'm a bit too busy. And, you know, and it got to be one a week and then one a month. And now I don't even remember the last time I did it. But, you know, it's, I think we've all changed and adapted. Well, I'm impressed with your one-month discipline, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I even did that. I, I kind of missed the driving. I will show just a funny little anecdote. Someone from West Australia um, sent me an email and said, can you give me a call on your drive home or right. to work? And it was like, <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good on you, Western Australia. We love you. Good on you, uh, Western yeah. Australia. Yeah, fantastic. Now, look, last time we had you on, we were, we were talking very much about kids, how they're doing at the moment, and the return to school. And I just wanted to follow up on some of that because I think we, you know, we had a limited amount of time to talk about it. But one of the things that you were very clear on was that a lot of our, our data was coming through parents, sort of a parent lens of how their kids were doing. I mean, is that still the case? And I mean, how, how reliable is that? So, I mean, it depends on the age of the child, but um, obviously as children get older, particularly over the age of eight, it's better to get it from the child themselves. Mm-hmm. And look, it's not unusual that the parent perspective and the child perspective align, but not always. So it's actually great to have both perspectives. The perspective of the parent, how do you think this child is going? And the perspective of the parent, how do you think you're going? And I think we've got some decent data on how parents are going. And I do want to shout out this morning to all the parents, particularly um, in Victoria, New South Wales, where the kids are starting to go back to school. And it's like, I'm anxious, I'm happy, I'm anxious, I'm happy. Mm. So I think it's a really tough time um, for parents at the moment and children probably the same thing, right? I'm anxious, I'm happy, I'm anxious, I'm happy. Um, so, So I think the parent perspective is still really important. But I'd like to see us start to get more data from kids themselves. And there's been some smaller studies um, around that. There was a very nice study done by our Victorian um, Commission here for children and young people, where they followed about 300 um, children and young people, slightly older, but um, and just got their sense of what the pandemic was like for them. A, a small study, so got a lot of qualitative data, but so a real sense of how it was impacting on these kids, a number of them living in quite adverse circumstances. And so I think those smaller studies are great to get perspective from a children's point of view. What would be great now to see is maybe using platforms like schools as we go forward to get a broader sense of how kids go travelling forward 
um, mm. particularly as we go into next year. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I'm wondering around this is that through the course of the pandemic, and, and look, some of this is understandable, some of it is not, there's been, there has been a fairly broad use of fear as a motivator, especially around adults from our governments. And, you know, I understand in some cases that this is often uh, sometimes a, a course of last resort. Sometimes it's been a course of first resort. You know, we've, we've seen a mix there. But how much do you see that flowing down to the kids? And what do you, what do you think the consequences of that are for them returning to school? Because we're talking about the mental health all the time, but a lot of it's around because they're not school, they're mental health is suffering. But now that we look at that transition back to a, a space where a lot of fear has been sort of put out there, I mean, what, what are the expectations with regards to the kids in that? So I think we've seen really interesting movement around um, fear over the whole course of the pandemic, and particularly, as you say, around adults. And we did some surveys earlier on, and, and it was clear that um, adults were concerned about COVID itself for themselves, more so for the children. Mm. Um, And so I do think for the parents in particular, there's been a whole series of contributors to their anxiety. So there's obviously the virus itself, and particularly before we had a vaccine, there is the um, concerns about, do I have a job? Will I have a job? There's the difficulties for parents in terms of looking after their kids um, for some remote learning worried about their own children. Um, And for some, there's um, the issues around lockdown and being all in the one. So there's been a lot of pressures, I think, on parents over this whole pandemic and the anxieties have come in from different places. I think as then as time has moved on and uh, the vaccine has become available and what the vaccine has shown us is that if you have the vaccine, you're far likely um, to even be sick from um, from the virus itself. So it's kind of a nice armour for um, families to feel a bit safer. But now what's clear is that there's this increasing anxiety about children and whether children will get COVID and and children will get COVID, that's quite clear, even though they're not likely to be sick from it. And so so I do think we need to walk this very fine line of both saying we need to put in strategies that are sensible, like let's vaccinate all the adults, let's do basic hygiene, let's in schools think about what, you know, for example, in Victoria, they've got the ventilation um, they're, they're doing the sort of things that kind of um, promote vaccination. So they're all the things to try to mitigate. So um, going forward, there's these two things um, parents are trying to hold, which is I'm, I really want my child to go back to school and because that's the place where they should be. And I'm getting kind of a bit of mixed messages about how safe that is or not. And I, and I think as we move forward, parents are just going to hold that for a little bit. And I guess our job as scientists to try and provide as much data that we can as possible. This is what's happening for kids, both internationally, where we're really seeing kids doing okay, even though the cases are going up, and how important it is to go back to school and just respect that they're you know, it's really hard for parents to hold both of those messages. Yeah. Now, um, a couple of Fridays back, we saw, uh, you know, one of your colleagues, a representative from the Children's Hospital at the State Presser, talking about, you know, the return to school and, and about mask wearing and the requirements there and, and was very clear about there being no harm um, with regards to kids wearing masks. Now, of course, if you spend five minutes on Twitter, you'll, you'll find a lot of other health professionals saying different things about that. And I think that's confusing for some, but... It, it seems to me, I mean, I know my son, you know, I'm sort of gearing him up, my nine-year-old, to wearing masks by getting him to wear it at other places. You know, when we go to the supermarket, frankly, it's probably a more dangerous place in the school. Um, but, and and I will say, you know, he complained for about, you know, 45 seconds. And then just like when he's wearing a hat or anything else, he seems to have gotten over it. Now, he, now it's actually a little point of joy for him, you know, as, you know, maybe because his mask has got the Millennium Falcon on the front. But, I mean, what what's your view of that? Because this seems to me... To be, you know, comparing apples and oranges, you know, the the concerns over mask wearing relative to the potential risk of, you know, and kids, well, some kids will get sick. It seems like a very small intervention to pay for prevention. So, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Trent. So, so we we would recommend children in primary school wearing a mask if they can. And Shane, you've done exactly the right thing with your child, which is let's practice, let's make it fun, let it, let's make it part of the social norm for the moment, with all the um, difficulties of that, like we all know you're not supposed to touch it, we all know that it's not the world's greatest thing in terms of getting it on, getting it, like, but that aside, it is still part of those layered strategies and as you say, it's relatively easy 
And we just need to accept that for some kids, it won't be possible. For some mm. children with sensory difficulties and developmental problems, or they just won't be able to. That's okay. But for those who can, we should really encourage our primary school age children to be wearing a mask and just get used to it at least for this term and let's see what happens uh, next term and make it fun exactly as you've done. Look, this is what we're doing. We're all doing it together. You know, the parents are doing it. The other people are doing it. We're just, you know, it's kind of all in. Yep. Now, in just the last couple of minutes we've got, um, with all the kids going back, what sort of things should we be looking out for? Because inevitably some of these kids are going to have friends uh, and teachers who end up uh, getting positive uh, tests for COVID and they'll suddenly disappear from the school environment. Some of the schools may even close. I mean, what, what, are the, what sort of things do we need to look out for for the kids in this, in this situation? Yeah, so look, lots of parents will be thinking about getting their kids ready for school. So I do encourage parents to be talking to their children about it practice it, getting into your, if there is a uniform, get into it or whatever you're going to wear, like if you're not wearing pyjamas to school this time. So, yep. you know, whatever you need to do. Some kids have been wearing school tops and pyjama bottoms. Get dressed, practice, <laughs> even go for a walk down to the school. This is what it's going to be like on the first day, particularly for the littlies because, you know, mm. they're a bit confused. I'm at home, I'm at school, I'm at home, at school. So those sorts of things are really important and parents feeling confident about that I think will be really important and then um, some kids will say I don't want to go but if parents can really work with their kids um, I think I think they'll be um, okay and yes some kids will get COVID and look we hope that COVID gets treated like any other respiratory illness that some kids will get it some kids won't we have seen a bit of COVID stigma yeah. and Maggie Danchon who's been um, on your show a number of times has done a little bit of research in this to really show that um, kids feel bad when they get it. They feel bad because they're the ones that got it and they feel bad because they feel like they might be passing it on to their families. Of course, the best way for that is for the school to normalise it like the flu. Some kids will get it, some kids won't. And the best way for the parents to keep their families safe is for them to get vaccinated. That way, if the child gets it, the parents know we're going to be okay. We're all vaccinated. Yeah. Well, look, Sharon, uh, thanks so much for all this. I think, you know, the, the take-home message, as always, is is education. You know, it's uh, talk to the kids about it, inf- keep them informed, have calm conversations. You know, I think a lot of the way we approach it as parents is what comes out in our kids as well. You know, if we're alarmist and we're freaking out and we're not wanting to wear masks and we're not wanting to be vaccinated, that's not a, that's not a good way to, you know, template their behaviour. And you know, by the sounds of things, you know, most I think most kids are probably looking forward to seeing their friends. So a few little things that they have to do to get that, um, I'm sure most of them will be very happy to do. Sharon, thanks so much for chatting to us at the moment. Uh, good luck with uh, your work. I know you're going to have uh, you need an eighth day in the week, I'm sure, if not a ninth. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be getting to the end of this, or at least you know, in a more stable configuration uh, very soon. Uh, you take care, and we'll no doubt chat again sometime in the future. Thanks very much, Shane, and good luck to all the parents next week. Thanks, Sharon. Folks, that was Professor Sharon Goldfeld, a paediatrician from the Rural Children's Hospital and certainly an expert in regards to child mental health and the way in which we're transitioning all the kids back to school. Uh, We're going to take a break for some tunes and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about volcanoes with a volcanologist, believe it or not. So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. If we hadn't met before, on the line with us now, all the way from uh, another state. We've just lost track of where I guess they're coming from these days because it doesn't matter when everything's on Zoom. Dr. Heather Hanley is an adjunct associate professor at Monash University and is, uh, well, she's a volcanologist. Good morning, Heather. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, I think uh, where I wanted to start this conversation with you was, shall we say, what a bit, slightly south, is it southwest of Portugal that uh, we find the Canary Islands? Have I got that right? Yes, off the, the western coast of Africa is the Canary Islands. It's actually one of the first volcanoes on Tenerife, so a nearby island to the current eruption on La Palma was where I saw my first active volcano. Well, I, can I just say a huge amount of envy uh, because I have not seen my first active volcano yet and I've wanted to do that. I was planning a trip to Hawaii a couple of years ago before uh, you know things happened. Um, but in what capacity were you at La Palma? Sorry, I missed out then. Oh, sorry. Um, in what capacity were you over there um, at the Canary Islands? 
Yes, I was actually there when I was nine years old on a family holiday to the island of Tenerife. And we escaped from the beach for a little bit with a family and, and wandered off, you know, took a, hired a car and went off into the, into the hills and saw Mount Tidy, which is the, the, a large active volcano there. And I just remember walking across this moonlight landscape, which was obviously mm. a, a lava flow that didn't have any vegetation growing on it. And just amazed me thinking, how can this huge, huge mountain that sat there so quiet at the moment be capable of so much, I guess, destruction? Mm. Uh, it's it's interesting to me, you know, we have these areas obviously around the world where the volcanoes are, are just active quite a bit of the time. I mean, what, what are the big sites around the world where you see that? So we see a lot of volcanoes and a lot of volcanic activity associated with the edges and the boundaries of these big tectonic plates. So the Earth's surface is made up of these more rigid you know, crust and part of the upper mantle. So as we go down into the earth, big plates that kind of move and crash into each other and pull apart. And we see a lot of the volcanic activity, which is obviously related to molten rock where that can form under the earth and where it can get to the surface. And so at the boundaries, the edges of these plates is where we usually see them. So that could be as subduction zones where plates crash and collide together, such as, you know, along Indonesia. So we know that Indonesia has over 129 active volcanoes. And this is because it sits on the of where two of these big tectonic plates are colliding but we also see them where plates are pulling apart so that might be in iceland so we've seen some recent activity Mm. there and where plates are pulling apart so all the way down the mid-atlantic ocean we're seeing the the tectonic plates being pulled apart and we see a lot of the activity occurs underwater but in iceland we can see it occur above the water yeah now before we get on to exactly what's happening at la palma um can you give us an idea of what what defines an active volcano versus a dormant one i mean what what does a volcano have to be doing to be classed as active yeah so for geologists i mean it maybe you know most people think oh if some if yeah if the volcano is doing actively doing something they can see it then it would be active but for volcanologists because you know volcanic activity at a at an individual volcano can go back way beyond, you know, our historic records and human memory and still keep doing things on, you know, longer timeframes. We use a, I guess, a general rule of thumb that if it's erupted in the last 10,000 years, which is obviously quite a long way back, but has the potential to be active again, then we call that volcano could still be active. Even though we might not see, you know, explosions or gas or anything coming out at present day, that's clearly active if it does that. But these these records, you know, the volcanoes operate on much longer timescales than what our, our human memory has. Yeah, and, and so what does that mean for a country like Australia? I mean, I know we're a fairly old um, tectonic plate. I mean, do we have any active volcanoes under that sort of regime? Yeah, so actually we've got at least three volcanoes that have erupted within the last 10,000 years. Hmm. So this is the Kinrara, which is in Queensland, and also down in southeast down, so down where you are, down in southeast Australia. So in in um there's an area from stretching from Melbourne all the way to Mount Gambia. And Mount Gambia and Mount Shanks are across the border in, in South Australia. They occurred with um, about 5,000 years ago, those eruptions. So even though in Australia, we might not expect, it's not like, you know, a, no, a big conical volcano where we know the eruptions kind of come yeah. out the top next. This area from Melbourne stretching all the way into Mount Gambia in South Australia, that whole region is still considered um active on the basis that some of the volcanoes have occurred in this big volcanic field. There's over 400 volcanoes in that area. There could be another eruption in the future um, within somewhere within that area. We wouldn't know exactly where it might be. Yeah, like it's fascinating to think about that because we we think about it as such a point of stability. And I know one of the favourite sites I like to visit is the Organ Pipes National Park here in Melbourne, where you can see that exposed... Um, after effect of one of those eruptions with those really unusual sort of, um, you know, literally they look like organ pipes. I think they're hexagonal shapes in the rock that have occurred. Is that right? Yeah, so that's very close to the airport, I believe, isn't it? I've never mm, got a chance yeah, to go yeah. and see it yet, but I yeah, I'd love to go see it. But what that happened there is there was a, a large lava flow, and when you get quite a thickness of that lava and then it, it cools and it starts to cool from the top down, it starts to crack. 
So mm. imagine you were looking on a lake bed that was drying up and you can kind of, if you look down from the top, you would see like the cracks that are all kind of poly- polygonal shapes like hexagons and things. And it's the same with the lava. So it starts to cool from the top and that cooling again go- goes down into the lava. And then luckily at the organ pipes, we're seeing a bit where, you know, we can see into the lava flow, the mm. sideways on view. And then we see these big, long columns. So we, yeah, columnar jointing is what we call it from the jointing of the rock that it's formed. But yeah, beautiful hexagonal columns. And there's quite a few places across Australia where you can see those beautiful features. Yeah, no, they're fasc- absolutely fascinating. And, and there's, you know, it's it, when you get there, it's particularly exposed. And the best part is there's a little little part of the river there that runs in front of them. So no one can go over and, and start take, <laughs> taking souvenirs, which uh, <laughs> is I think why it's managed to, to stay pristine for so long with all, um, you know, all the tourists that go down there. And, and um, you know, we, we're restricted to photos. Now, what what's going on with La Palma at the moment, because uh, for for some who have sort of seen this, um, it's some pretty spectacular uh, lava flows and uh, erupting activity there right now. Yeah, so the Cumbra Vieja volcano on, on La Palma um, started to become active on about the 19th of September. So for nearly a month now, we've seen these lava flows, you know, coming out of the, the volcano and running down the flanks, the sides of the volcano, and kind of um, yeah, basically just destroying anything that, that's in its path, which unfortunately has been a lot of, you know, residential houses, mm. uh, industrial estates, plantations. And so... The, I guess there's a lot of hazards associated with volcanic activity. The main one for La Palma at the moment are these lava flows. Some of them are moving slowly, so it's easy for people to kind of get out of the way. You know, there's been, a, I think, over 6,000 people evacuated. But then there's also been a little bit more explosive where you've formed like, like little vents or cones. We've seen a bit more explosive activity with some ash going into the atmosphere. Yep and then landing around and also some gas that comes out that can obviously be hazardous to, to people in, in the area. And so the eruption, the last eruption there was about 1971 and lasted for a few months. The eruptions there, you know, there have been eruptions in the past um, and it's not known. It doesn't seem to be slowing down yet. So it's not clear yet how long this eruption is going to be going for, but it's already been going for about a month. With regards to the lava flows, um, what affects the speed with which they occur? Because you, know, you see some footage of them from, you know, not necessarily from La Palma, from other eruptions where it kind of looks like a river, you know, a fast moving river, whereas some of the footage I've seen in La Palma is, rel- you know, could kind of outwalk it, you know, what, what affects yeah. the speed? There's a few things that affect the speed. So one, um, a very simple one is the, is the slope. So how mm-hmm. steep the slope is, because obviously a steeper slope, it's going to move faster. But the other thing is, is how hot it is. So, you know, you can imagine that if you had um, some syrup or something and you put it in the microwave, you know, it'd be quite, when it gets more runny, it's hotter and it can, it could flow easier. If it's, you know, if it's just been in a cold fridge, it would be very sticky and not move. So yep. the temperature is one thing. If it's hotter, so usually closer to the vent where it's hotter, it can then, you know, it's flowing faster and as it gets further out, it might slow down. And then the other thing is there is what it's made of. So it's kind of its ingredients, its composition. And so where we're seeing like in these volcanoes, such as Hawaii and such as on La Palma, these are known to have very runny, so low silica um, magma or lava. And that's what enables this to move also quite freely as opposed to somewhere if it was more sticky or more viscous and the flows just can't move because they're, you know, because they just can't move further away from the volcano. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we forget sometimes is the reason, and this is where I want to go next with you, is the reason we need volcanologists and geologists is to exactly know these sorts of details about various volcanoes so we know what kind of threat that they, they can pose to you know, nearby you know, houses and, and, and towns and so forth. Now, you have been doing quite a bit of work um, around this issue of making sure that we have, have people you know, moving into the field that you're in because there's there's been a bit of a, a sort of I guess a not quite extinction but really a reduction in the number of people who are, are moving into geosciences and so forth over recent years at, at, at university and so forth. Yeah, yeah, we're struggling especially in Australia at the moment, but also in other countries in the world with just engaging students into geoscience. And I think it's you know it's part of the current um, public perception, you know, that geoscience might only mean mining oil and gas, and you know mm. that's kind of you know, most people are now, you know, really keen to address things like climate change, you know, uh, and the energy transition, you know, cleaner energy types. And geoscience is absolutely fundamental to that. And I think that's, you know, a message that we need yep. to to um, get out more broadly and more widely. Just really the role that geoscience is going to play in making a more sustainable uh, future for the planet. 
And and in terms of the, you know, how is it hard to, I've always found this interesting, how is it hard to convince people that volcanoes and earthquakes and all these things are bloody awesome? I mean, it seems to me, I remember as a kid getting into science and it was the first thing that interested me, probably more than anything else. Yeah, I think, you know, I can see it with my own children, you know, they're really interested in, I've got two two girls, four and seven years old, and they still love, you know, volcanoes and dinosaurs and, earth, you know, learning about the earth and how it works. And so I think we're just, you know, somewhere along the lines, people are, are then obviously want to think about the environment and move that forward, but not mm. quite seeing yet how geoscience plays a role, you know, beyond um, an earthquake and a volcano happening, you know, just quite the role, you know, whether it's groundwater monitoring, whether it's, you know, looking at soil health, yep. you know, or whether it's like looking at geotechnical for the uh, construction industry. You know, there's so many different avenues, yeah. you know, as well as these natural hazards and um, that geoscience is contributing to. And I think, yeah, we just need to communicate that a little bit better. Now, in the last minute that we have together, tell us about the Earth Futures Festival that you have co-founded. Yeah, so basically in response to this, you know, to try and think how can we do this, you know, how can we do it so we can communicate um, really well and broadly across across the world, the value of geoscience. Um, I found it along with a TV producer that I work with. We've teamed up with UNESCO, the International Geoscience Program there, and the International Union of Geosciences, which represents a million geoscientists, to form the Earth Futures Festival, which is a video and film festival, which is going to showcase the role of geoscience through, through video and through films um, across the world. And we're going to do that um, basically online so all the content for the finalists will be online but we're also going to have in in person face-to-face events in new york paris and sydney cool and so people can just submit their they can submit their um videos for the the competition and see how they go so even people like me science communicators can submit things yeah yeah that'd be fantastic everything from primary school students secondary university students geoscience professionals media professionals community groups anyone who has a connection to the land and, and understands you know how it works or has an idea of what they might want to submit about geoscience and, and the sustainable future of the planet um, is welcome to submit and, and that will open on the 1st of february next year fantastic well we, we'll keep an eye out for that one um heather i think we could probably talk all day about volcanoes we didn't even <laughs> talk about earthquakes um we could talk about this stuff all day because there's there's so much around that with regards to sensing and detecting and gases and pyrocrastic flows and people are impressed to even know that term um i had to look it up <laughs> but uh it's it's really interesting stuff thanks so much for chatting to us today and, and good luck with this ongoing work and i hope we can inspire a lot more people to get into the field thanks very much shane thank you Folks, that was Dr. Heather Handley, uh, who is an associate professor at the Monash University. Folks, we're going to have to hand over in a couple of minutes to the team from Eat It. Um, you've been listening to Einstein at GoGo on 3RRR. I think it's, uh, look, it's a bit of a dreary Sunday out there, but if you're lucky, the clouds will clear later this evening and you'll be able to see the International Space Station fly over just after about 8.35, I think it's 8.38 or something. Uh, Dr. Crystal talked about it earlier in the show. So look out for that if you get a bit of uh, clear sky it's kind of cool to watch it go over and and know that uh you know just recently they've been filming some russian film up there which is which is kind of cool as well but they do do a lot of science there day in day out um using that facility is quite extraordinary we uh well that's we're pretty much out of time it's been uh, great uh chatting to you about science yet again handing over now to the team from eat it have a great sunday i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere and we'll chat to you again next week hi this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.